0: I want to invite you guys to turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to look at at a a section of this chapter today. And if you're visiting with us, we're so glad about that. Thank you for coming. I want you to know that we're studying right now together in in this this time in our worship service each week. Uh, One of the first things ever written about Christianity, one of the oldest and first documents that we possess that explain what Christianity is, what it is to trust in Jesus, what it looks like to follow him with your lives. It was written by uh, one of Jesus' closest friends who was given the job by Jesus of of helping other people come to understand what he'd heard for himself and seen for himself from Jesus. And it's written to a group of brand-new Christians living in a part of the world where Christianity was unknown and made no sense to help them understand how this radically new identity Christianity had, had brought to their lives should flesh itself out in their day-to-day lives. That's what the letter's about. It's about being a Christian in a place that Christianity is foreign. One of his key terms that he's used for the people he's writing to is that they're resident aliens or exiles. They belong to one place, but they live in another. And their belonging to the place where they belong is gonna make them different from the place where they live now. And what we've seen so far is that the main reason they're different, the main thing that sets them apart from the place where they live is not what they look like or what they what they sound like, what sort of language they speak or anything else that might make you foreign in a place. What makes them different, what sets them apart is their hope. This first chapter has been a chapter all about hope. What hope we have, why we can trust it, what it looks like to hold on to it when things are hard. And then today, what we come to in this section is the first set of commands immediately practical advice on how to live in light of hope. What difference to our lives would it make if we respond well to the hope God has given? That's what this passage is about. There's three commands. Like I said, these commands are immediately practical for our lives. They are not, though, however, immediately clear. In some cases, these commands are going to need a little work from us to understand what they mean and what it might look like for us to obey them, to embrace them. So all I wanna do this morning as we walk through these verses is to highlight three commands that Peter gives us. They're all three drawn from the hope that he's been talking about and everything we've looked at so far in this letter. I wanna look at those three commands and one by one break them down so that we can see what these commands mean and what it would look like for us to embrace them. Now I wanna start by reading this section together. I'm gonna to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that. I'm gonna pick up in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. And then I'm going to read all the way through verse 21. This is God's word to us this morning. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you and to you through those who who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. These are things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. so that your faith and hope are in God. This is God's word. You can be seated. I mentioned there's three commands buried in here in these verses we've just read together. I want to pull them out one by one. I want to make sure it's clear what they mean so that then we can talk about how to embrace them. And the first command that comes through in the verses we just read together comes through in verses 10 to 13. It's this command, be hopeful. Command number one is be hopeful. That's how we should respond to the hope God has given. These first verses I read you, uh, verses 10 to 12, the reason I put these verses with this section that we're talking about this week is that they sort of sum up the first uh, nine verses of the chapter that we've been looking at in the last two or three weeks together. They really belong with what came before the passage we're going to focus on this morning. I included them here because. The passage we're looking at this morning draws conclusions from everything we've been looking at before this morning. And this, this, this paragraph sort of ties the two together. It's talking about this salvation. It starts with that. What salvation? Oh, the salvation he's been talking about in verses 3 to 9 of chapter 1. The salvation that that was possible because Jesus is alive again, even though he was dead because he's raised from the dead. The salvation he's described as an inheritance set aside for you as its heirs. Inheritance that's kept by God's power for you in heaven that will never perish or fade or be defiled. Because of that salvation, the commands that that we'll look at this morning have been given to us. And what he's saying in these three verses here, verses 10 to 12, is that is that this salvation is the big news of the universe. It is the headline that hangs over all of history. It was the obsession of the prophets that Israel was so enamored with. It's what they focused their whole lives on. They wanted to know everything they could about it. They wanted to know more than was told to them about it. They were obsessed with it. In fact, he says even in verse verse 12, even the angels which they would have honored and revered, and Israel certainly did. Even they are obsessed with this salvation. They long to look into it. Think of these angels as the kid who who has a favorite book, and he just wants you to read it over and over and over and over again. He doesn't ever get tired of it because he's obsessed with it. He just loves it. He loves living in that world. That's these angels. They long to look into this salvation that you've just been told about. They can't get enough of it. So because of this salvation, this living hope that you've been born into... Because of this inheritance set aside for you, because of this good news that the prophets spent their lives inquiring into, because of this good news, this key story of all of history that the angels spend all their time looking into, because of this news, therefore, be hopeful. The command that comes through comes in verse 13. Therefore, he says, preparing preparing your minds for action, being sober minded, here's the command. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the command we need to understand this morning. I know it sounds redundant to say, in response to hope, be hopeful. But I don't mean it to be redundant. So far, Paul, or Peter rather, has been talking about hope as a kind of possession. It's like an inheritance. It's something you have. It's something given to you. Something you claim. Here he says, set your hope fully on the grace, which is the same thing as this hope that God has given you. So he's been talking about as a possession. Here he's saying, claim it. Be hopeful. Set your heart on it. Hope in your hope fully. Now let me show you what he means and how to do it. He gives us some help on both counts. I think what he means by this command, to be hopeful, to set your hope fully on the grace that's coming is, is basically the the command is basically don't hedge your bets. Don't hope on this plus everything else that most other folks are hoping on. Don't don't think of this hope this coming grace this inheritance that's been promised to you as a kind of insurance policy that you pay for and then set aside for when you need it later. Sometimes we can do that, can't we? We hedge our what I mean by hedge our bets is I, I don't remember what poker game that is or what uh, what what casino game that is where where there's some little thing rolling and you put your chips on, sometimes you'll put your chips on the black and the red and on several different numbers. You're hoping at least one of these is gonna hit and that way I'm not losing everything. He's saying, don't play that game with Jesus. You want all your chips, boom, on the one circle that is Jesus, that is his hope, the grace that's gonna be revealed to you one day. Put everything there. Don't hedge your bets by, by thinking of Jesus as this insurance policy that you're gonna need one day while meanwhile, you go about searching, seeking, loving, worshiping the same things everybody else is. Just in case. As if you could have your cake and eat it too. As, you, as if you could, could seek everything else the world seeks and then still get Jesus at the end. It doesn't work like that. I mean, let me give you a contrast. Me, this would be a good image of someone who set their hope fully as opposed to hedging your bets like I've been talking about. Paul another one of the earliest teachers of Christianity, one of Peter's contemporaries and friends, used very similar language in one of his letters. His his first letter to a group of Christians in Corinth, 1 Corinthians, chapter 15 of that letter. He's writing about the resurrection of Jesus, much like Peter is here. He's talking about how everything in our faith depends on Jesus being alive again. And what he says is that if Jesus isn't alive, if he's still in the grave where they laid him when his body had died, Then we are of all men, Paul says, most to be pitied. What he's saying basically is we're fools if Jesus isn't still alive. Now why? Why would he be a fool if Jesus wasn't really alive and couldn't make good on his promise to give life to Paul? He would be a fool because he had given up everything for Jesus. He'd be a fool because he lived without a home ever since Jesus saved him. He traveled all over the world talking about Jesus, preaching the gospel. And he didn't do that because he thought he might get wealthy. He actually gave up what would have been a promising career and would have made him comfortable so that he could travel around preaching the gospel to people who sometimes believed for a bit and then didn't. In fact, he spent his spare time making tents, that was his skill, just so he'd have the money he needed to eat and live on so that he could go around preaching the gospel. And meanwhile, as he went around preaching the gospel, he got shipwrecked a couple of times. He was beaten a couple of times. He got thrown in prison sometimes. Eventually, he was even killed for believing in Jesus. And he did it all with joy. He counted everything he used to have as loss. As we read earlier, as Catherine read for us earlier in our service from Philippians. He he, he took everything he had, which was a pretty good reputation and, and, and prospects for a career, and threw it away so that he might share in the resurrection of Jesus. So Paul says, if Jesus is dead, like if there's nothing to this hope, I'm a fool. Pity me. That's what I deserve. Because he didn't hedge his bets. So I wonder, would your life look foolish to those who don't believe if Christ were not really alive? Would others who know you well but don't share your hope pity you for the choices that you've made? Would they they look at the, at the, the, the way you do things? At the priorities you've set for yourself and think, what are they doing? It's ridiculous. Don't they know Jesus isn't really alive? If they would pity you, it could be a great sign that you've set your hope fully on the grace of God that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus. That you're all in on what he's promised you. I think that's what the command means, to be hopeful. It means stop hedging your bets and go all in with Christ. But he also gives us some help on how to do it. What it would look like for us to set our hope fully. He provides some ideas for us with a couple really powerful images I want to make sure you recognize before we move to the next command. These come through in a couple of phrases that he attaches to this command. So if you go back with me to verse 13, I'm going to show you what I'm talking about. In verse 13, we said the command here is set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. That's what we've just been talking about. Hopefully now it's clear what that means. But before he gets to the command, he gives you a couple little phrases that tell you what it would mean to fulfill that command preparing your minds for action he says and being sober-minded two images that i want to make sure are clear because they're so helpful to us as we think about what it might look like for us to set our hope fully on what jesus will do for us rather than on anything else let me give you each of these images. Now the first image is a little bit lost to us because it, it's translated preparing your minds for action. That's what it means. But, it, you, but behind that phrase is a really old way of talking that, that's lost on us. It's gird up your loins for action. Gird up your minds. It's when people would have had these long tunics on. And if you, if you wanted to run somewhere, well, you're asking for it if you try to do that in a tunic. You're going to trip. You're going to fall. Maybe injure yourself. So you'd, you'd gird them up. You take your tunic and you tie it off up around your legs. Think of it as putting on running shorts, right? Don't go out there in your jammies. Put on your running shorts because you've got a race to run. He's saying, he's saying what you need to do with your minds is prepare yourself. Discipline your mind to set your hope fully on the grace that's coming. I think what that would mean is, is to focus on the thing you're hoping for. The command here is not like hunker down and white knuckle your way into more hope by hoping on hoping on hoping on hoping on hoping as if the point is the action of hoping and I just need to, to do it. No, the action of hoping comes as a downstream from your focus on the thing you hope for. So, so what you do is you, you put yourself in the position of the kid who's looking forward to Christmas. Right? You don't have to tell that kid to hope for Christmas. He knows what Christmas means. He's been thinking about it since last Christmas. And imagining what would make the final cut of his Christmas list. He's got dreams of sugar plums dancing in his head. He's waiting through the agonizing last hours before the day arrives. And all he's thinking about, all he's focused on is that morning. And I think that's what Peter's saying here. So we, we focus on the grace of Christ by preparing our minds to look at it. And when we do that, it drives us into hope. Don't focus on hope itself. Like, oh, I just have so little hope. I really need to hope. Let me hunker down and hope some more. Focus on Jesus. Discipline your mind to pay attention to him. To think carefully about the things that have been told to us about him. And the hope will take care of itself. The second image helps fill out the exact same picture. This is not a new idea. It's just helping us get our minds around it, really, really chomp down on it. The second image is the image of soberness, being sober-minded. The opposite there would have drunk, to be drunk, to have your mind clouded, numbed. This is why mental vigilance, this discipline that he's been talking about, is so important to us. Without the discipline that comes through the girding up your mind's idea, then we'll probably just be carried along we'll probably just be swept up in the current of what everybody else is hoping for. The things we hoped for before we heard about Jesus. The kind of things that we we think might provide a meaningful life if Jesus were still in his grave. It's gonna take work and careful attention to avoid the kind of numb, carried along drunkenness that would come natural to us. Jesus warned against us having the cares of the world choke out the hope of the gospel. I think Peter has the same thing in mind. Without careful discipline, we'll just be carried along. So, so, so it, towards this command of setting your hope fully on the grace that comes to us when Jesus returns. I think some helpful questions to think about for yourself would be, what are you putting into your mind? And does it make you more or less focused on, committed to, happy about? The promises that Jesus has made to you. And some of the things that, we might, that might make our minds drunk, that might numb us to this promise, could be overtly sinful things. If you've ever struggled with sexual, giving into sexual temptation and pornography for a long period of time, or even for a short period of time, you know the effect that can have on your mind. The numbing effect to the things of God, that repeated sin against God can have. It can make your mind drunk, carried along, Not conscious, not focused. Other things are more morally neutral, maybe, but less obvious. But but still can damage your ability to focus on your hope. And what kind of ads are you consuming? Whether that be on your social media feed, or the TV that you're watching, or or wherever you're getting them, we're, we're constantly being bombarded by people offering us good lives through the product that they that they sell. And sometimes you don't even notice that that's happening to you, right? That you're consuming all of this. But are you you sort of losing time, flipping through, scrolling up on your phone the different things that, that maybe you might want sometime? Have you thought about the fact that that is the world telling you, hope here, hope here, hedge your bets. Don't put it all on Jesus because what if he doesn't hit? Go ahead and grab what you can now. Or even our entertainment choices can sometimes numb our minds. Neutral things finding themselves in moderation but can numb our minds, can make us drunk to the hope that is, is meant to, to consume us. So I'm going I'm to pick on myself here. It was, a, uh, it was I don't remember when it was, maybe three or four years ago. I was t- it, was, it was in November. I was talking to my father. My father's also a pastor and so I go to him with some of my pastoral challenges that I'm facing and he gives me wisdom. And There was one time they were here visiting and I was telling him, man, I just feel like I'm really detached from my sermons lately. I just, my, my, my emotions aren't really engaged in them when I'm delivering them. I'm not really into them. I just don't feel it. I'm just not excited to talk about the things I'm talking about. What do you do to get out of a slump like that? And without asking me anything about what I had been doing up to that point, he said, well, I've noticed that there's usually a direct connection between the amount of football I'm watching on a Saturday and how I feel about my sermons on a Sunday. And I thought, yeah. That makes sense. Uh, now, there's nothing wrong with, with watching a game of football on a Saturday. You know, and my children have helped wean me of the habit more than anything else, by God's grace. But, uh, but you know, there was certainly a time in my life where I thought of Saturdays, this is before uh, I was in ministry, but where I thought of Saturdays, is like my, that's my reward for a hard week of work. I'm going to prop up on the couch like one of those figures in WALL-E. You guys know the WALL-E movie where people just sit around and they drink their sodas? And they eat and their bones turn to just like something really floppy. I don't know what it is, but they can't even move. That that was basically me on a Saturday. I'd be like laid out on the couch with my snacks around me, just watching football. And it was awesome. But I've noticed that that in moderation, what can be a great way to engage your friends and your family and have fun can actually end up numbing your mind like drunkenness to the things that really matter. Because here's the thing about our hope that we're supposed to set our hope, the hope that we're supposed to set our hope fully on. It's a lot like uh, the, uh, the, uh, earlier this week, I was talking to some friends about what happens to a set of silver if you don't touch it, if you don't help, if you don't, if you don't polish it, right? That, that pretty soon the air gets to it and that set of silver tarnishes, doesn't it? Instead of the glory shining out from beneath it, there's this black film that develops over it pretty quickly. You've got to work it to see its true glory. You've got to constantly be polishing and staying on to it. Well, sometimes even our entertainment choices, certainly sinful habits, but even mundane things like, like a poor uh, use of, of entertainment that's available to you can allow that, that tarnish to get over this hope that we're supposed to set our hope fully on. And it loses its luster and it doesn't capture our imagination in the way that it's meant to. So what, what we're being told here is that because God has, at the cost of his own son, and confirmed by the resurrection of that same son, set aside an inheritance for you that will never perish or ever be defiled. Because he has given you the thing that the prophets gave their lives to thinking about. Because you now possess the thing the angels long just to look at. Don't let that get tarnished. Be hopeful. Set your hope fully on the grace that'll be yours when Jesus comes back. That's command number one. Command number two comes next in verses 14 and 15. Command number two is the command to be holy. It comes out as a kind of negative and positive combo command. There's a command of what not to do and a command of what to do. They go together to fill out the same image of holiness. Don't go after, he says in verse 14, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Instead, be holy in all your conduct. What's this command? What does it mean? Where does it come from? I think what it means to be holy uh, is is really pretty straightforward. It's a major theme in the Bible. It comes straight from who God is and how he's described to us in the Bible. It's to be set apart. It's to be set apart by righteousness that reflects God's righteousness. So we're not going to talk this morning about specific ways that we should be holy. Those are going to come out later in the letter. He's going to give us some specific examples later on, so we're not going to do that today. We're simply going to talk about the command itself and what that means. So it has to do with set-apartness. So uh, think of the temple. There was a lot of holiness language around Israel's temple, including things like a shovel could be holy, the one that was used to scoop up the ashes from the sacrifices and, and to do something with them. That shovel was holy because it wasn't supposed to be used for dirt outside. This one was for God. It was for His service. It was to be done and to be used for His temple and and the purposes that he gave it it wasn't for common use similarly god's people were described as holy because they'd been set aside from what might be a common use from what they would just be doing anyway to be for him to represent him in the world and to and to honor him by the way that they live to reflect something of his beauty to be holy is to be set apart now in a a non-moral sense And you experience something of the holiness he's talking about anytime you travel in a a culture that's not yours. So in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be traveling through uh, uh, a few different countries where we have members who are living full-time for the sake of the gospel, just going over there to encourage them and see their world and try to bring a little bit of us to them. And one of the things that I always notice on trips like this is just how interesting it is to be surrounded in, say, an airport where basically nobody else speaks your language, where they don't smell the same, they aren't dressed the same, they don't have the same currency. They aren't interested in the same uh, hobbies or, or, or sports. You're just, you stand out in every way that you could. That's pretty much what is expected for Christians, according to Peter. You, even though you're still living where you always did, have the same family you used to have, have the same options for worship all around you. Now you are holy. Now you don't belong where you are anymore. You've been set apart for God. That's what it means to be holy. I want to show you, though, where it comes from. We're going to talk a lot more about what it means later. So later in the letter, especially in chapters 2 and 3, he's going to give us several examples of where holiness should show up in our lives. So I want to to just put a pin in this for now and refer you to what's coming later. For now, I want to make sure you see what he tells us here about where this holiness comes from. One of the reasons that this command to be holy uh, is so important is that it flows directly out of the new identity that That Christians are to have by God's grace. I want to show you what he's saying here. So a couple of different things that I want you to see about where the holiness comes from. It comes first from new new desires. That's this negative command in verse 14. He says, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Holiness comes when 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 you swap out those desires, those passions for new desires that come from him. It means wanting different things. We're holy when we want different things now with this hope than we wanted when we had no hope. If our wants on this side of Jesus are not different from our wants on the other side of Jesus, then, then we haven't connected with Jesus. We haven't set our hope fully on the grace that God will reveal. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, 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 that there will be no pull to the old former ways. That pull is in all of us. I'm saying that against that pull, a counter pull will be desires for what God has promised, for what he's told us is good, for what he's set aside for us. So for example, I'm not gonna eat a bunch of chips when I know somebody's fixing me a fine steak later in the evening. Sometimes I like to eat chips, especially certain varieties in certain settings and I might feel the pull of those chips that I like, even on a day when I know I've got a steak dinner coming, especially if my tummy starts growling. If I start getting hungry, I'm going to start thinking about those chips, if they're close at hand, if everybody else is eating them. But, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to remind myself, now I know I've had a steak before. I know what that tastes like. And I know what happens when I eat too many chips. I'm not hungry anymore. I can't let that happen. So I'm going to sit here while people are eating chips around me with my focus on the steak to come and I'm going to wait. And I'm not going to wait just by the strength of my own self-discipline but because I've got a new desire for something that's even better. And that's what he's saying here. Don't be conformed to those old passions of your former ignorance. You've got new desires now. Set your hope fully on the grace to come. Holiness flows from new desires. It also flows from a new Relationship. It flows from the fact that they're now children. He says, as obedient children whom God loves as a father. Verse 17, it looks at his fatherhood too. You call on him as father. There's a new relationship here. And in relationship to God who is holy, you'll be holy. That's what he's saying here, that, that children resemble their parents. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy. As it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. What he's pointing to and that we're going to talk about a lot more in in weeks to come is the fact that when when you're God's child, you're like your father. It's a call to just be who you are. You've got a new DNA working itself out in you. It will bring out a resemblance. You take on the family business that your father handed on to you. We're going to talk a lot more about that. I I just want to say one more thing before we move on from this command. This is crucial, friends. There is life in this observation. So please hear me. Both of these things that we've noticed, where holiness comes from, the new desires, and especially this new relationship, both of these sources of holiness come to us as a gift from God. It is God who replaces one set of desires with another. It is God who brings us into his family before we were because he decides to. So what that means is that holiness is not something we muster to gain God's favor. Holiness begins with God's favor, flows out of his favor, flows out of him making us his children by his grace. Here's another way to put the same idea. Our default mode especially if we think that it's up to us to convince God to love us our default mode is to be hopeful because we think we're holy our level of hope depends on the holiness we can see in ourselves what peter is saying is that in christ we're holy because we're hopeful we're not hopeful because we're holy we're only holy because we're hopeful. The differences, the set-apartness of our lives comes from the hope that we've set ourselves on fully. I love, the, I love the way Jesus talks about this idea in his story of the Pharisee and the publican. There's two guys praying at the temple. One of them's a Pharisee, a really holy man. He looks over at the tax collector who was despised and he says, thank you, Lord, that I am not like this man. I give my alms to the poor I give to the temple as I'm instructed I obey the law I keep it thank you that you've not made me like this guy that's a guy who is hopeful because he thinks he's holy but Jesus says one man went away justified that day and it wasn't the Pharisee it was the one who beat his chest and said God be merciful to me a sinner when you latch on to hope you become holy not the other way around that matters a lot because of the third command that I want to spend the rest of our time talking about. The third command that comes out in this letter, or in this section of the letter, rather, is the command to be fearful. So we've been told to be hopeful, we've been told to be holy, and now we're told because of this hope, this salvation that the prophets spent their lives on, this salvation that the angels long to look into, because of this salvation, be fearful. Look at verse 17. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. These are the three verses I want to really camp on for the rest of the time. The command is clear enough, it's, a, it's, it's right there on the surface of the language. Conduct yourselves with fear, or as I'm putting it, be fearful. I think it's safe to say this third command is the one that's the most difficult for us to understand and to embrace. He's reminding them that God will one day judge fairly according to every person's actions. He's saying because of this judgment that's coming, you should live with fear on this journey while you're aliens in a foreign land. And that doesn't sit well with us in general. But in general, we don't like that language, I think, most of us. But it really doesn't sit well with all this language about hope. So there's this kind of visceral yuck factor to, the, to command that, that we should be afraid while we're living this life. But then there's also just sort of question mark that hangs over, how can you tell me to be hopeful in one sentence and then tell me to be afraid in the next sentence? How is hope and fe- How can hope and fear coexist And and to make matters even less clear, to me anyway, how is it that, that I'm supposed to be fearful because I know, verse 18, that I've been ransomed? Be fearful because you know you've been ransomed by Jesus' blood. It's like he's using the blood of Christ as a reason for our fear, not a reason not to be afraid. How does that work? And how does that square up with other things the Bible teaches us? I want to spend the rest of our time, as I've said, trying to understand this command because I think it's so important How do we understand what this command means, much less obey it? Well, I want to give you three reasons for the fear that he points to. Three three reasons that fear is important that Peter's pointing us to in his language here. What it means to be fearful, why it's important to be fearful. Three things. I'm going to start with the bad news and move to the good news. The first reason that we're commanded to be fearful is that God will judge every person according to what they've done it really isn't anything unclear about that line, is there? If you call on him his father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. And what, he's, what Peter's referring to here is, is a truth that's taught all through the Bible, from beginning to end. God takes sin seriously. It is his intent to completely rid the world of it. And he will do that on a day of judgment in which every person who's ever lived will stand before him, seen, in which everything you thought you'd hidden, maybe everything that's hidden even from the people who are close to you, will be exposed before his eyes. Friends, I will face that day and you will too. And the God we stand before who will see us as we are is a God who loves justice. He is passionately committed to setting all things right. His commitment to justice is the only hope of all oppressed people who live and die without seeing justice. Who live and die. Think of all the people. Thousands upon thousands who lived and died in slavery as Christians not seeing their masters give an account for the way they treated them. God's justice is their only hope for justice. And the Bible promises that those will give an account for what they've done, even though they didn't in this life. But the same justice that is our only hope for him to set the things right that bother us now is a justice that will see us too for who we are and will judge us for what we've done. Imagine it. It's fearful. That's what he means, plain and simple. The first reason to fear is that all of us will be seen and judged according to our works. I'm not going to spend any more time unpacking this idea now. I do want to refer you to a really helpful sermon that Bill Hearman gave over the summer on a a, a part of Lamentations. That's all about God's judgment and His wrath and how it helps us to connect with Jesus. You'll find that if you just go to our website, look on the sermons page, look according to the timeline. It should be easy to find. It's on the iTunes subscription too, where Bill gives a lot more detail on this idea. I want to move now to the second reason that we should be afraid. We should be fearful. Peter says, because the ways that we inherited from our forefathers are futile. Be fearful. Conduct yourselves with fear, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. What does that mean? I think he's telling us to fear futility, to fear empty hopes, to fear being carried along by a current that tells us you can find meaning and hope in places that have none. Now he had in mind for his readers surely their pagan background in pagan religion you only get as much justification as you can pay for in pagan religion the world is populated it's full of gods but none of them are your father none of them are for you they are for hire you are fatherless in the world of paganism and so you make the sacrifices you think you need to make you do the good things you think you need to do to get that particular god on your side for this particular need but you're the quarterback You're the mastermind. You're the one who has to know what you need and you're the one who has to be able to pay for it. That's the ways of their forefathers. And friends, with with less religious language, it's how many of us live now. We'll only get the meaning in life that we can supply for ourselves through our success at work or the relationships we cobble together or you fill in the blank. We're justifiers. We're constantly trying to establish ourselves. That's a futile way inherited from our forefathers that Jesus has come to ransom us from. It's a slavery. It will crush you. You should be afraid of living life as if you will only get as much justification as you can pay for. It's worthy of fear because it's empty. It's a dead end. Now, The final reason that Peter tells us we should fear is the good news that answers to this bad news. Most of all, he tells us, his biggest focus here is that we should conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile, knowing that we've been ransomed by the most precious commodity in human history, the precious blood of Christ. You should be afraid. Conduct yourself with fear because you've been ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus. I think it's pretty clear that's what he's saying, but what does he mean by it? How is the blood of Jesus a reason for fear? Well, I want to make one big qualification before I answer that question, friends. You need to know this. You need to know that, that the blood of Jesus, the fact that he died for sinners freely without condition, is the Bible's primary reason for confidence and the best evidence you'll ever get of how much God loves you and how worthy he is of your trust. So the same blood of Jesus Peter is citing here as reason to conduct yourselves with fear is also a reason for confidence. If you're wondering what Christians believe and if this passage has maybe caused more confusion than it's, than, than it's alleviated, I want to just make it really clear to you that the gospel is this. The gospel is that you were created by God, not by accident. You didn't just spring into being. You were known ahead of time and designed on purpose with beauty and creativity and power that no other kind of creature in this world possesses. That's you. But all by God's gift. All because He decided to make you. And the reason he decided to make you is that he wanted you for himself. He is jealous for you. He wants your life in his purposes. He wants to prove to you how good and trustworthy he is by giving you everything you need. He wants you to demonstrate your trust in him by knowing that what he says is good for you and embracing it. All of us were made to glorify him by trusting him in that way. But every single one of us, not just all of us in this room, but every person who's ever lived has chosen not to trust him. Has chosen our own ways over the ways he's given us. In that is a personal rejection of the God who has given you every breath. You have told him by your disobedience that he can't be trusted, that he is not worthy of your trust, that you'd do better on your own. Whether you knew that's what you were telling him or not, friends, that's what you've said, and that record has to be set straight. God can't live with that lie. Everything depends on it. What you deserve because you've, tr- because you've turned from him and trusted yourself instead is to, is to have your choice exposed for the foolishness that it is. And the Bible says that's what God will do. All have sinned, Paul says in Romans, and fallen short of the glory of God. But he follows up that message in Romans, same chapter, a couple verses later, with the news that the prophets gave their lives to and that the angels love to look at. Even though we deserve to have our foolishness exposed, even though we deserve to be the theater in which God sets the record straight, he has put forward, instead of us, his own son to pay the cost of our sin. Our foolishness will be exposed in the death, the blood shed of of Jesus so that we can become righteous like he is. Or as Paul puts it elsewhere, God made him his own son who was perfect to be sin, taking our sin onto himself so that we could become righteous like he is. That's the gospel. And Paul in Romans chapter 8 applies this gospel to our fear problems. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. You don't have to be afraid of being judged when you're in Jesus. You don't have to be afraid of what will happen to you because all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What can separate you from the love that sent Jesus to you? Nothing can. And he says that the God who would not spare his own son, how will he not also with him freely give us everything we need? In Romans chapter 8, Paul uses the blood of Jesus, his life given for sinners, as the primary reason we should have confidence. That's true. And if you're fearing right now, you should go home and read that. But we need to understand why we should be afraid knowing that Jesus shed his blood. We know it's a reason for confidence. How is it also at the same time a reason for fear? Well, it's because... Because everything depends on being found inside this shelter. When you hear fear, think urgency. Think life and death. This call to fear, knowing there's a judgment coming, fear, knowing those other ways were futile is a call to fear being left in the environment where Jesus' grace found you. It's a call to recognize, in other words, that there is a storm raging outside. No one will survive it on their own. So stay inside where you're protected. Think of the judgment of God according to works as a hurricane that's coming. It's bearing down. Nothing can survive its winds. Think of Christ's blood as a shelter built for you by God. The same God you offended at the cost of his own son's life has built you a shelter that will stand up in the storm. But the storm is out there. Fear it, knowing that this blood is here for you. So this call to fear is not meant to make you quiver. It's meant to make you sheltered to press deeper into the blood that's already been shed for you and given to you as a gift and to do that with confidence because you know it will stand up to that storm you can't survive on your own. Friends, do you have a shelter? You can. Jesus promises that no one who comes to him will ever be turned away. Friends, are you afraid about the storm that's coming? You're not wrong to fear whether you could survive it on your own. If you're wondering if you've done enough to survive God's judgment, you haven't. But if that's what you're worried about, then press deeper into the shelter built for you, a rock of ages that won't ever break, and you will be safe. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to trust Jesus that you would overcome everything in us that wishes to trust in other things, that you would continue by your spirit to trade out the passions of our former ignorance for the pure and holy desires for the goodness you've promised us. And we pray that together, by your word and through one another, you would help us to set our hope fully on the grace to be revealed with Jesus. We pray in his name, amen.